thanks uh, Chris for reading that to us. <coughs> Almost um, five years ago, um, two German tourists were walking through the uh, Sequoia National Park in the United States. They were walking what's called the Trail of the 100. Called the Trail of the 100 because that trail allows you to see, I don't know if it's exactly 100 or thereabouts, but 100 great redwood trees. They are the tallest trees on the planet. They grow to over 300 feet. Uh, Their bases sometimes measure 20 feet, so you can imagine just how big they are. Anyway, these German tourists were happily walking through, no doubt enjoying their, their holiday, when all of a sudden they started to hear this clicking sound, is how they described it. And they couldn't tell where this clicking sound was coming from. And it got louder. And they started to get a little worried. And then they started to feel movement in the earth, just slight tremors underneath their feet. And then, literally, before their eyes... Thankfully, not in their direction. One of these great, not just one, but two great redwood trees that had grown up side by side came crashing down. Quite an experience. You can look at it on YouTube if you want to. He just about got his camera out in time before it finally hit the deck, or they hit the deck. And uh, yes, one minute, there's this tree that is one of the greatest trees on the planet, possibly 2,000 years old, there when Jesus walked the earth. This huge tree that towers, these trees that towered above the forest, way, way above all other trees. One minute it's there, or they're there, and the next minute they're flat on the earth. I guess you can see the connections of that story to the one that Chris has just read to us from Daniel chapter 4. Now Daniel chapter 4, we didn't start at the very beginning, but is really a letter, (coughs) a letter that Nebuchadnezzar sends to the whole of his empire. Maybe Daniel wrote it for him, maybe Daniel edited it, I, I don't know. But this is part of a letter, and we'll come back to the very beginning at the end of this, uh, the talk. But so, it's starting at verse 4, we read, Nebuchadnezzar was at home, in his palace, and he was very contented. He was very rich, very prosperous. I mean, he is, he is the greatest man in the world at that time. He has everything that he wants, and his kingdom is secure. The two other major powers, as we looked at a few weeks ago, Assyria and uh, Egypt, have been defeated. There is no one that can take his power away from him, or so he thinks. He is very content. I just want to say something here, because we don't want to get the wrong message. God is not against us being contented. God is not against us. In fact, he wants us to be happy and content and blessed and fulfilled. Sometimes we hear whispers that say, actually, God's not like that, that God is mean and somehow wants to restrict us and doesn't want us to enjoy life. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible wants to bless. We read, don't we, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, it's God who richly provides 
us with everything for our enjoyment. That's what God wants, is for us to enjoy all the things that he's created. So he's not against that per se, but what he is against, and you see this worked out in Nebuchadnezzar, is where we think that somehow it is just all about me and my enjoyment, my life, my success. That's not the way it's meant to be. We're meant, and if we go on and read in 1 Timothy chapter verse 6, if we read around in 1 Timothy 6, we'll see that the, the Paul there writes that, the, that we're to put our hope in God. That it is him that we're to trust and him that we're to acknowledge as the one who provides all good things and all of our blessings come from him. And also that's to be lived out in the context of community. That we're to share what we have. And there is blessing in sharing. There's not great blessing in trying to keep it all for ourselves. But God is not against blessing. God is the one who blesses. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it starts wonderfully well. It's a very pleasant dream, and it connects with what we, what we just read in verse 4. And there we see, uh, in verse is 10, 10 onwards, that he sees this great big tree, and it is a marvellous, magnificent tree. It is a tree like there is no other, and it is huge, and it is healthy, and it's, and it's covered with fruit, and the birds nest in it, and the animals take shade underneath it. He must have been enjoying this dream, <laughs> but not for too long, because the dream, the dream becomes what we call a nightmare, because in verses 13 to 17, a messenger, a holy one from God, enters in. And while he's still looking at this wonderful tree, the messenger shouts out, basically, shouts out, Cut it down! Cut it down! That's not what Nebuchadnezzar was wanting to hear. And he sees, in this vision, he sees this tree cut down. He sees it come toppling down. And, and, the, and, and, the, and the, the, the branches fall off, the, the birds are scattered, the animals scatter, the fruit, the fruit is scattered all over. A scene of great destruction. And all that's left is a stump in the ground, still with its roots attached, but just a stump. And that stump is either to be bound with bronze and iron, or it is to be fenced with bronze and iron. Both are possible interpretations of what the text says. And in the dream, in the nightmare, because this happens in nightmares, doesn't it? The tree then becomes, turns into a person, a person. A person who is going to be experience, in a sense, what has happened to the tree. The tree, the, the person is going to have his mind changed so that he's no longer a man. He's what we call a madman. He's going to lose his mind. And he's going to become like an animal, living out in the wild, Eating what the animals eat. There are, by the way, one or two medical conditions for people who actually have uh, had what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. So it is possible people who have become so wild and they've lived like an animal eating grass. And this is what he sees in this dream. It's almost as if there's a verdict, there's a courtroom scene here, 
And God, God is the judge. And he's pronounced the judgment against Nebuchadnezzar. And in this judgment, he has been found guilty, and he's now going to be sentenced. And the sentence is, this is how he's going to be for seven times, or seven years maybe. We're not sure could mean could mean that. So Nebuchadnezzar wakes up afraid and terrified. Now, when I have bad dreams, or even good dreams, very quickly, I forget, forget them. For a few minutes, I'm trying to think, well, how did that feel? And it's gone. It all evaporates. Not like this dream. Not like this nightmare. This one is crystal clear in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He doesn't forget what has happened here. And so he calls, first of all, in verses 6 and 7, he calls all the wise men, the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was a very spiritual place in that sense. They worshipped many, many different gods. The worship of the gods was intrinsic to everything that happened within Babylon. They were a very spiritual people. And so he calls in all of these people who have special, recognised as having special spiritual powers, and he calls them in and asks them to interpret the dream. And they cannot. And then last of all, I don't know why Daniel's last of all, but in comes Daniel, who he refers to as Belteshazzar. Daniel, whose name was changed to, to connect with one of the gods of Babylon, the god Bel or Marduk. And he recognizes, doesn't he, Nebuchadnezzar, that the spirit of the holy gods is in Daniel. And he says to Daniel, now tell me what it means. And now Daniel is terrified, we read. We're not sure why, but it may be because he understands quickly what this dream is about. And maybe he doesn't want to be a messenger of terribly bad news. Maybe he's concerned for Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know. Maybe he's concerned for himself. I don't know. And he says in verse 22, doesn't he? Very simply, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that tree. That tree that was so magnificent, so wonderful, that dominated the whole of the world. That tree, though, that also then is going to be cut down is you. You are that tree. You think you've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. It's going to be cut down. And then he, verse 24 onwards, he gives the interpretation. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, Look, Nebuchadnezzar, your dream is literal. It is literally going to happen to you. You're going to be driven away from people. You're going to live with the wild animals. You're going to eat grass like cattle until you acknowledge, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And then, and only then, will your kingdom be restored to you. Daniel doesn't stop there, does he? He goes on to, uh, to say... He could have just stopped there, but he's out of perhaps concern for Nebuchadnezzar. He becomes even bolder. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, verse 27, basically he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to change. You need to change your ways. You need to stop doing what is wrong, and you need to start doing what is right. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was a, 
He hadn't got to the top by his charm and his good looks. He may have been charming and good-looking as well, I don't know. But Nebuchadnezzar had got to the top by his ruthless exercise of power. He was merciless. He, 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 he'd murdered the things, if we were to read about the things that Nebuchadnezzar did, we would be absolutely appalled. And Daniel says to this man, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to change. And if you change, maybe even now, effectively, God will be merciful to you. And the things that you saw in your dream, maybe they will not happen. He had a very difficult message to bring, didn't he? A message of future judgment. A message that he needs to be accountable to God and that he will be accountable to God. A message that he needs to change or else. That reminds you of anything? That reminds you of a message that we have been entrusted with that most people do not know that actually there is going to be a future judgment where every person will be judged. Every person will be accountable for their life, for the life that God has given them because he is the source and creator of all life. A message that we perhaps don't want to give, not because we're afraid of our heads being chopped off, but maybe just because we're embarrassed. Or maybe we don't care. It's a serious subject, isn't it? And yet, like Daniel, we need to bring, be willing to give that message with grace and compassion. And whereas Daniel might only be able to say or imply that God might be merciful, the truth is we can say that God actually is merciful. We know that. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. They will not be held accountable because Jesus has been, has been taken account of all of our sin. So we don't just have a message of judgment. We have a message of good news. But why are we so reluctant to tell people? I was talking to a guy, actually this is in my text, talking to a guy recently. I didn't know who he was, but he turned out to be a, a, a chief um, police chief commissioner, chief constable. That's what I'm looking for. And I didn't know he was quite famous because his son had been killed, who was also a policeman, his son had been killed in a terrorist attack. And as a chief constable, he'd then been interviewed about what he thought about his son's killers. And he made the national news by saying, I forgive them. I forgive them for what they did to my son. But, and why am I telling you that story? I've now gone, I've forgotten why I started that story. Because, oh, that's right, because he said, he was talking about telling people the, the gospel. He said, you know what, I had a dream. What changed things for me is I had a dream. I had a dream that I had died and I was going, being welcomed into heaven. But as I walked along the path to enter in, 
I saw all these people that I knew from this life, friends and family, and as I saw them, they, shout, they were shouting out to me. And they were shouting out things like, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell me what you knew? A powerful dream. It had a powerful effect on his life. He said, after that, I determined that every opportunity I could, I would tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ and his good news. And Daniel does that for Nebuchadnezzar. How did Nebuchadnezzar react to this terrible news? Well, the text doesn't tell us. But I think we can surmise from what happened next. Because we jump, don't we, to 12 months later. <coughs> Verse 28. 12 months later. God is patient. God has given Nebuchadnezzar 12 months in which to make the changes. Having heard that message from Daniel, having received that message, he has 12 months to change. God is a patient God, and we can look at lots of illustrations in Scripture of the patience of God. I just want to ask one thing here that came to me as I was reading this, and that is this. Has God asked of me anything which I know he's asked, and which I've said yes to, and which I've not yet done? The answer to that question is yes. And so I ask you the same question. Has God asked of you anything that you know that he's asked? It's clear. I'm not talking about making things up. Clearly he said something to you. And it may be the, the, may be the most important thing of all, that you need to repent, just like Nebuchadnezzar, and, f- and come to God and receive his grace. But it may be other things. It may be someone that you need to speak to. It may be a relationship that you need to seek to try and restore. It may be someone that you need to forgive. It may be someone that you need to receive forgiveness from. It may be anything. But if God has spoken to you, and you, and when he said it, you had, like me, you had every good intention of following it through. And yet the truth is, whatever time it is, however many months or years it might be, the truth is you've still not done it. Well, God is patient. But he's also just. If I'm reminding you of anything this morning, then I'd ask you, well, perhaps it's not me, perhaps it's God that's reminding you. Do what what he has asked you to do. Maybe you just need to trust him for how it will work out. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar had good intentions. <clears throat> but 12 months later, we see, we see him looking out at his great city. Verse 28. He's looking from the roof of his royal palace. Verse 30 he says, So I mean, Babylon was a great city. They reckon it was um, 15 square miles. It was absolutely huge. It was the mega city of the planet. It had great palaces, temples, libraries, hanging gardens of Babylon, wonder of the world that he built for his wife. His wife obviously liked gardening. He got a bit of soil. In fact, he got a lot of soil. He built a pile of soil, huge pile of soil, 400 feet high. And I don't know how big it was, but it was massive. That's what he did for his wife, so she could walk in the cool of the day in these lovely gardens. 
Babylon was a city of greatness, of culture, of beauty, of magnificence. And he's looking out across this city. And there's one thing, by the way, he also sees as he looks out this city. He sees a ziggurat. You know what a ziggurat is? I didn't know what a ziggurat was until I read this. Okay, well, a ziggurat is a huge tower, square at the base, and then it becomes a cylinder. Well, Babylon had got its ziggurat, and it dominated the skyline. It was, th- it was the same height as a giant redwood tree, 300 feet high. Taken many, many years to build. At the top, it had rooms for the gods to dwell in. By the way, does that remind you of anything? If you were here when Daniel, <laughs> when Daniel, when Darren <laughs> spoke a couple of weeks ago, he, he mentioned it. Well, if you look at Genesis 4, you'll see another ziggurat. Another ziggurat. The one for which Babylon got its name. Babel. The Tower of Babel. That man built to show that they didn't need God. That they could do it all themselves. They had all the needed where was God? They didn't need him. So they thought until God confused their languages. And here in Babylon, we have another, in this, almost in the same place, we have another tower. And, and Nebuchadnezzar looks out across this kingdom and he thinks what? Does he think how great God is that he's done all of this? That he's allowed him to build this city of culture and magnificence and beauty? Does he think that? He said, no, he does not. He says not, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? That's what he literally says. And no sooner as he said those words than another voice is heard. Another voice is heard. King Nebuchadnezzar, your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And now, immediately, it happens. No delay now. No more 12 months. That's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He's driven out from the palace and he becomes a mad man. And there he lives for seven years or seven times. There are great falls. We hear of great falls, don't we, from grace or power in our society. We hear of presidents that are impeached and find themselves in prison. We hear of world leaders convicted of war crimes and sentenced to jail or even execution. We find out great athletes have cheated and they're stripped of their medals. We hear of politicians uh, who have lost their honours. We hear of uh, we hear of all sorts of things. Great businessmen who have been made bankrupt and ruined. Great falls. Has there been any greater fall than Nebuchadnezzar's? From the greatest man in the world to a man whose 
with long hair, long uncut nails. I don't know how long they were. We see pictures, don't you, sometimes of ladies who grow their nails to uh, eating grass. Any greater fall than that in the history of humanity? Possibly the greatest. Jesus repeatedly taught said these words, it's recorded on several occasions, and maybe he said them many more, I don't know. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He said that to the disciples when they were arguing about the greatest. He said that to the Pharisees. He said that to when people were looking to get positions of honor at the table. He said that to people who are confident in their own righteousness. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's true. That is what's going to happen. We might not see it in the here and now. Sometimes we look at people, people we think whose lives... You know, how come they're so successful, so rich, and look at the life they live, and this doesn't seem to be true, but it is true, and it will be true for literally every single one of us. That if we exalt ourselves, we will be humbled before God in due course. It may be in the life to come rather than the here and now. But if also we humble ourselves before God, we will be exalted. That's what Jesus said. What will it take for us to humble ourselves? Pride is man's problem, isn't it? From Adam and Eve onwards. They, didn't, they thought they could be like God. They didn't need God. They could be like him. They could do all that he could do. If only they did what this little creature was telling them to do. And that's been the truth all the way through, is that we think we're okay. We can do it on our, on our own. We can do it our way. We don't need God. Who is he? Is there a God? He is God. He created everything. And one day everything that he created will give account to him. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, <clears throat> for Nebuchadnezzar, there was a day of restoration. He was humbled. But there came a time when he says, I raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. He got his mind back. Amazingly, and this could only be by God's protection, I'm sure, he got his job back. You'd have thought there would have been many people who actually Nebuchadnezzar had treated very badly to get to his position at the top. Who would have taken, been very easy for them to kill this madman. So he could never return. But he gets his job back. He gets his kingdom back. And he says, he, and he says in verse 36 that he became even greater than before. Even greater than before. God did that for him. And that's the difference. Now he knew that it was God who did that. It was God who put him in that place, that position. And he writes this letter to the whole wide world to let them know that it is God who is to be acknowledged. God is to be glorified. God alone is to be worshipped. Not men. 
God. And he tells the whole empire, every person in his empire gets this message from Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that amazing? I just said in closing, is this the, is this the, was Nebuchadnezzar's the greatest fall ever? No, it wasn't. This is the greatest fall. This is the greatest humiliation. Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is the greatest humiliation, humbling of any man of all time. Isn't it? That God left his godhood, in a sense, behind, left his glory behind, and he comes down to earth as a man, and as a man he served, and as a man he allows himself willingly to be taken and dies on a cross. Why? Why? So that we might be exalted. But we who deserve to be humbled, we who deserve to be treated like Nebuchadnezzar was treated, that we who deserve that might in due course, by depending on his grace, depending on what he did on that cross, might be exalted to the highest of heights. What will it take to humble us? What will it take for us to realize who God is? And that he alone is to be glorified and he alone is to be worshipped. If only we would see what Jesus has done for us. And therefore God highly exalted him. The place that is above every place. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Every tongue will confess that he's God. The question is, is will we do that now? Voluntarily. Freely. Because we know that it's true. Or is God going to have to humble us like Nebuchadnezzar?